You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Good morning, church. Good to see you. It's good to be together. It's a gift and a privilege to gather with the church week by week. So, so thankful that you're here, that you're committed to this practice. And if you're a guest with us this morning, I want to especially welcome you. Uh, We are not a perfect church by any means, but we do boast in the fact that we have a perfect Savior whose name is Jesus Christ. And so we want to make much of him today and uh, open the word and even find him and the good news and the grace and the truth that he offers us in his word today. Before we jump back into this text, though, I do want to acknowledge that for many kids in this room, for many families, grandparents in this room, This week is an important week. This is perhaps a week you have been praying for for a while. It is back to school week. And um, and that's a big deal for a lot of families, for a lot of kids, kiddos in the room. You're headed back to school. I want you to know something. As you head back to school this week, um, we are praying for you. You are loved not only by God, but loved by this church. And we are praying for you. Our staff and our elders will be praying for you on Tuesday. Those of you that are a part of Round Rock ISD, go back. Tuesday. We're praying for you on Tuesday. And I want to take a moment now as we begin our time, and, um, and I want to pray for back to school, pray for our kids. So let's pray together. Almighty God, creator, redeemer, sustainer, we thank you for this opportunity and for this privilege to gather with your people to reorient our hearts and our minds around what is good and true, to receive your grace, and to be met with your mercies. And as we are mindful of a new school year that's starting this week for many kids and families in this room, we first and foremost just ask for your peace. I want to pray for that, for your peace that surpasses all understanding for our kids as they walk into new classrooms with new friends, new teachers, maybe even new campuses, that your peace would anchor their heart, that they would know that they are deeply loved by you. I pray for parents. We confess even that as parents, we are prone to worry this time of year. And so we ask that you would help us. Would you keep us in step with your spirit? Help us to bear the fruit of the spirit of peace and joy and self-control this week. We pray for your hand of blessing and protection over our students, over our educators, over our school district. Would you lead our students not into temptation, we pray. Would you protect them from the enemy, and from all evil this school year, we submit them to you and to your protection and provision, Holy Father. I pray for the teachers and administrators that are in this church, educators and and coaches. We ask that you would grant them with great wisdom and guidance as they seek to be your hands and feet this year. Establish them in every good work and fill them with your spirit, we pray. And finally, Lord, I want to ask that you would help us to be a church that is engaged in this community. Help these students to be lights of your truth and of your love to their classmates. Help us as parents to be uh, lights, missionary people to fellow parents that we encounter this school year. Would you grant us boldness to speak of the hope that we have in Christ? Would you fill us with your spirit that we might be your people, people that make known the grace of your son? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen. Okay, well, we are in 1 Corinthians. If you have your Bible open, I want to invite you to meet me there. Meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you're new with us, we're in the middle of a study in 1 Corinthians. And uh, we've been in 1 Corinthians for a while. We'll continue to be in 1 Corinthians. We've got about five chapters left. And in this letter, the Apostle Paul, he's writing with a purpose. The Apostle Paul is writing to produce humility, holiness, and love in a church 
that is marked by pride, recklessness, and division. This is why we have titled this sermon series, Renovation. Apostle Paul is bringing the good news of Jesus Christ. He's bringing, offering corrections and instructions and reminders to a bunch of people that have kind of gone the, the opposite way of the way of grace, of the way of Jesus. They're a young church, and, um, and it's gotten messy. They've gotten proud. They've gotten arrogant. They've gotten reckless with how they're choosing to live. They've gotten divided, and Paul wants to wants to, to bring these faults and these fractures in the church to the surface so that he can correct them, so that the Holy Spirit can renew them. And in doing this, he's answering some of their questions as well. All of it is he's trying to get them unified as a people, as Jesus's people, getting them unified around the gospel, getting them unified so that they can live together on Jesus's mission in the first century world. And what we have in our text today, chapter 10, verse 1 through 13 the Apostle Paul is giving a bit of a history lesson to the Corinthian church and to us. He's giving a history lesson. It's intended to act as a warning. A history lesson that's intended to act as a warning. Maybe you've heard the saying, history repeats itself if we don't learn from history. He's giving them a history lesson that's meant to act as a warning and specifically a warning against temptation in our lives. I want to be honest with you for a second. One of the biggest temptations in my life is the temptation to speed on the interstate. Um, I think I've told you a story before about the great amount of shame that I felt as I was speeding here on A.W. Grimes. An officer pulled me over and wrote me a ticket in our church parking lot. <laughs> um, I was reminded uh, this yesterday, I was reminded of, of my, the temptation in my life to speed. I think God gave me an illustration that might help us understand this text. Yesterday, I was headed to a funeral. We had a, a brother in this church that we've, many of us have loved who, who suddenly passed away, and, and there were a few of us that went up to the funeral and temple. And yesterday, I was especially vulnerable to the temptation to speed on the interstate. I was running late. Traffic was worse than I had expected. And so my foot started to get heavy. But then I as I'm speeding, kind of weaving through traffic on I-35, trying to get to Temple, a bit reckless in my driving, I came across a warning. And I think we might have an image. Do we have that image for the slide? Here was the warning. It wasn't this exact one, but it was like this. 1,785 deaths this year on Texas roads. And let me tell you what that warning did for me. It sobered me up. It sobered me up to the danger of what I was doing. There's a speed limit for a reason. It sobered me up to the arrogance in my life to think that I can just fly down the highway as fast as I want and that there wouldn't be any kind of danger. There wouldn't be destruction or collision that might come my way. In fact, there are 1,785 people this year that ignored that reality and never made it home. And so guess what happened? I heeded the warning. I learned from the history lesson that TextDot provided on the interstate, and I slowed down. My arrogance was shattered by the reminder that there are many others who have driven these roads but never made it where they were going. This is, in a way, what the Apostle Paul is doing in this text. He's offering a warning to the church. He's saying, brothers and sisters in Christ, pay attention to your life. Specifically, he wants to warn us to the dangers of temptations. He wants us to see this, that we, you and I, are more susceptible to temptation than we realize. We are more vulnerable 
to the enemy, to Satan, to his tricks, to temptation than we often imagine. Paul's going to take us into the pages of Exodus and to Numbers and to the story of Israel to remind us that we are more prone to deceiving ourselves than we realize we often think we're good. I'm all right. I can, I can play with sin and I'll be fine. We are more prone to idolatry than we'll admit. We're only one bad decision away from devastating consequences. In other words, sin is serious and Satan is real. We're more susceptible, more vulnerable to temptation than we realize. If you're taking notes today, there are two main things I want to show you in the text. One is a sobering history lesson, a sobering history lesson, and two, an empowering promise. First, let's look at the sobering history lesson. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Just as a quick aside, I love Paul's teaching us here how to read the Old Testament with a Christ-centered hermeneutic. What does that mean? He's reminding us that everything that's happening in the Old Testament, everything that God does and that he's done through his people of old is all meant to point us to Jesus Christ. And so he's mentioning that here in this text. He starts by saying, I don't want you to be unaware. Don't miss it. Don't overlook something that is important about being the people of God. And then he goes on and he highlights some of the most important or worst, or some of the most, most important moments in Israel's history. He hits some of the highlights of their deliverance. But he does it in a way that's interesting. He's paralleling Israel's deliverance, Israel's exodus, with our own deliverance and our own salvation as Christians, especially for those in Corinth. If you aren't familiar with the Old Testament, let me give you the story of, um, of Israel in um, maybe two minutes here. Um, Israel was God's covenant people. It started with a gracious choosing of Abraham. God chooses Abraham, a man of faith. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 12. And he makes a covenant with Abraham and he, he makes a promise with him. And he essentially says to him, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you so many descendants that it will be like the number of stars in the sky. I'm going to make you into a great nation. You'll be my people. He says, through you and through your offspring, through your lineage, I will bless the entire world. All the families, all the nations, he says, will be blessed through you. Spoiler alert, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one who would come in the lineage of Abraham through the nation of Israel who would offer salvation and deliverance to all nations and to all peoples. But there's a lot of important history that goes on in between Abraham and Jesus. We learn a lot about God. We learn a lot about his character. We learn a lot about human beings. We learn a lot about the human heart from the story of Israel, about our sinful nature as we read the Old Testament. Long story short, God holds up his part of the deal with Israel. He does bless Abraham and his offspring and make them into a great nation, although that they struggle to be faithful to God. They are unfaithful to God, yet God is faithful to them. If you fast forward 400 years, Abraham's offspring is now the nation of Israel. They're 600,000 strong. The only problem is that they find themselves in Egypt. And the leader of Egypt, who's the, the, the kind of Egypt at this time is like the big bully on the block, 
Uh, they're the big world empire. And Pharaoh starts to see them as a threat. 600,000 Israelites, God is blessing them. They're growing in number. And so what Pharaoh does is he ruthlessly enslaves the people of God. You can read about this in Exodus chapter 1. But God has been working behind the scenes as he always is. God had been working preparing salvation and deliverance for his people. He raises up Moses to lead them in miraculous fashion. God leads them out of slavery in, in Egypt. He displays his power and his glory over Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. He reveals his glory. He delivers his people. This is what Paul is pointing back to. He's saying, remember how they were all under the cloud? Remember how God's presence guided them out of slavery in Egypt? How he led them by cloud by day and by fire by night? All 600,000 of them experienced this miraculous, powerful, gracious salvation. Do you remember this? Remember how they passed through the waters? And Paul is recounting all of this in an intentional way that parallels with our story as his new covenant people. He's saying, remember how God showed up and how, his, and, and how God showed up in your life? Remember how God's presence was there and he met you in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your bondage, in the midst of your sin, things you were enslaved to, and he saved you out of that? Well, yeah, he did that for them too. He did that for them too. You, you know how you were baptized into Jesus? And you went into those waters and you identified with Jesus and you came out of those waters and you have a new identity now, a new life. You're clean, you're forgiven. You're now with God's people. He's marked your life in baptism. Remember that? Well, he did that for them too. They were baptized into Moses. All that means is that Moses was their leader. You were baptized into the Messiah. They were baptized into Moses. Moses led them through the waters, although they didn't get wet in their baptism. That's pretty cool. Moses led them through the waters, just like Jesus is leading you. Lord of your life. He, he, Paul is saying, you know how Jesus has made you a people and how he's promised that he will nourish you, he will meet your every need, he will satisfy you with his loving kindness and with his grace as you gather with the church, as you feast on Christ with the Lord's Supper? Well, he did that for them too. He did something similar. They all ate the bread of manna and drank the water that he provided. You see, Paul is paralleling their story of salvation and their story of deliverance with ours in order to set up a different parallel, a warning. We find it in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Nevertheless, despite the amazing, miraculous, gracious deliverance of God uh, that the Israelites experienced, despite all of that, oh, Siri's talking to me. Um, despite all of that, there were only two from that generation that never made it into the promised land. He says, nevertheless, with most of them, that's a, that is the uh, understatement uh, of the day, all but two of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. This generation that experienced remarkable deliverance, they died in the wilderness. They never experienced the fullness of God's promise to them, the fullness of life in God. They never got there. And Paul is setting all of this up, even Moses, by the way. Why? Why is it that they fail to experience the fullness of God's promise? Well, it's because they were time and time again given over to temptation. They didn't heed the warnings. So what's the point? How does this parallel? Well, look at verse 6. Paul says, These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. That word examples is the word model. 
In other words, he's saying the ancient Israelites on this side in the new covenant, on this side of Jesus Christ, we can look back at them and they are a model for us. They, they model two things for us. They show us something about God. First and foremost, they show us the things that God displeases. They, they show us the, the things that, that grieves God's heart. Secondarily, they show us the types of things that we're susceptible to as human beings. They are, the ancient Israelites, for us, they are like that text dot sign. They meant to slow us down and sober us up to the dangers of sin, to the dangers of temptation. Paul then goes on and he gives three specific examples in this history lesson. By the way, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that there's like a million examples of their unfaithfulness and their idolatry and their, their stubbornness and their sin despite God's faithfulness. But Paul gives three, and the three examples are significant. Let's look at those. Verse 7 through 10. Paul says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. And were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. We get three examples here of Israel's sin idolatry, sexual immorality, and grumbling against God. But I actually think that Paul is, is showing us something more than that here. This is more than just, hey, stay away from idols. Don't fall into sexual morality and don't grumble. Paul has picked these examples for a reason. There are specific temptations underneath these sins that Paul is paralleling with what's happening in the Corinthian church. The first we find in verse 7. In verse 7, Paul quotes Exodus 32, 6. He says, the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. And then he gives a warning, don't become idolaters as some of them were. What's going on in Exodus chapter 32? Anybody know? It's, the, it's where the Israelites make for themselves an idol to worship, the golden calf. Their leader, Moses, is up at the top of Mount Sinai, getting instructions for them from God. And while Moses is up there, on the top of Mount Sinai, the people get so impatient, one, impatient with Moses, too impatient with God that they decide that they're going to take matters into their own hands and they collect all the gold jewelry that exists among them and they, uh, they refine it down and they create a golden calf idol and they begin to worship it. They get impatient. Moses is taking too long. They create an altar to this golden calf. They celebrate it. That's what he's quoting, the, the way that they ate and drank and partied, celebrating this new little God that they made for themselves. These are the people that God just delivered out of Egypt. What's Paul referencing here? What is he pointing to? Here's what he's pointing to. It's not just the idolatry, but it's the fact that they are going back to the very way of life that God saved them from. They are partying like the Egyptians. This is the way that the Egyptians would have worshipped the Egyptian gods. Don't miss this. They go in one moment. All of this happens in an instance. They go from singing God's praises and experiencing God's victory and receiving God's provision. And in the next moment, a moment of impatience or perhaps a moment of disappointment that here they are in the wilderness and where is their God? Why is Moses taking so long? Or perhaps 
in a moment of doubt, is Moses ever going to come down? Are we ever going to see our God again? They go back to the very thing that they were saved from. Church, do you see the warning that Paul is giving us here? He's saying to them, to the Corinthians, and he's saying to us, beware. It's happened back then. It could happen to you. Satan would love nothing more than to keep you from all that God has saved you for. He would love nothing more than to pull you back into the very things that Jesus saved you from. Do you see the temptation that he's warning against? And perhaps some of you have experienced this. Perhaps some of you this morning are even there where you find yourself pulled back into the very things that Jesus Christ, by the blood of his cross, delivered you from. Beware, Paul says. We have a real tempter. Be on guard. Don't be arrogant. It can happen to you. And then he turns his attention to sexual immorality in in verse 8, which if you've been with us, we know this was a struggle in the Corinthian church, sexual immorality. In verse 8, Paul references the events that are detailed in Numbers chapter 25, where a large number of Israelites face judgment. We're told over 20,000 people experienced the judgment of God and died in the wilderness. Wow. What in the world must have been going on in order for God's judgment to fall upon them like that? Well, not only did they turn to idols again, this time to Baal, but the men of Israel, you can read about this, Numbers 25, the men of Israel began to take pagan women as their wives. And so not only are they abandoning their covenant with God, but now that they are, they're taking pagan women as their wives. And the text tells us that they begin to practice pagan worship, that they're offering uh, worship to Baal, who was the God of fertility. Do you see the significance here? This is an all out covenant. Uh, they're breaking the covenant. This is adultery against God. The one who promised that he would make Israel a great nation and bless their offspring Now here they are in a surrounding country, and they are marrying pagan wives. They're worshiping the pagan god of fertility, trusting that god to be their future and their hope, and not Yahweh. Wow. It's an utter, complete covenant betrayal. And again, if you read Numbers, it happens in an instance. God is providing for them, faithful to them, giving them victory in battle, and then the next moment, they're worshiping Baal and taking pagan wives. And again, Paul is pointing to the temptation here. He's saying, Corinthians, if if you're not careful, he's saying, Christians, New Covenant believers, if, if you're not careful, we can look up and we, the people of God, can find ourselves in adultery with the world. We we if we're not careful, we can be Christians in name only. Like Israel was not practicing worship to Yahweh, they had become just like the pagans. If we're not careful, we can find ourselves no different than the world around us. This was a real present temptation for the Corinthians. Paul's already addressed this. They were dealing with elitism and factions and paganism. All of the things that existed in Corinthian culture was seeping into the church. And so as we seek to follow Jesus here together, we must ask ourselves, how are, how are, we, are we aware of this temptation? Are we aware of this pool in our lives and in our heart to become no different than the world around us in our culture? Are we a distinct people? Are we living lives that are holy and set apart, that are generous 
and sacrificial that are intentional to love and share the gospel with those who are far from Christ? Or are we no different than our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends? You see, Satan would love nothing more than to make the people of Jesus begin to follow the ways of the world. This is a real present danger, both for our joy in Christ and for our witness in the world. And Paul is warning us, like the text dot sign, pay attention to your life. Are you distinct? Are you holy? Are you set apart? Are you following the story of the world? Lastly, Paul warns against putting Christ to the test. He says, don't put Christ to the test as some of them did when they were destroyed by serpents. Now, those of you who are terrified of snakes have been waiting for me to get to this part of the text. What did they do for God to send serpents upon them? We read about this in Numbers chapter 21. The people begin to grumble and complain about God and about Moses. Numbers 21, 5 through 6 says this. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? You see their lack of faith? You see that? See, they're grumbling. Why have you delivered us and saved us just to leave us in this season of sojourning and waiting a promise? You see the parallels to the Christian life? For there is no food and no water. That's a lie. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food that you provide. God, what you've done for me and what you've provided for me and how you sustain me, it's not sufficient. I need more. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people. <laughs> so what's the moral of the story? Don't complain about your pastor. There you go. Just kidding. There is, this is relevant, especially to, to the Corinthian church. There's an undercurrent in the Corinthian letter that Paul is addressing, but he never says it explicitly. And the undercurrent is that the Corinthian church was turning on the Apostle Paul. The Corinthian church was kind of sick of the Apostle Paul. They, they were arrogant and puffed up. They're divided. They would rather, that's why they would argue and say, well, forget about Paul. I, I follow Apollos or uh, I follow Cephas or I follow Jesus. And so Paul is warning them here of their arrogance to think that they don't need leadership in the church. The temptation that they are facing of becoming, wanting to be autonomous, self-centered Christians, which is, by the way, the ultimate oxymoron, a self-centered Christian. But it's all too common. He's saying, don't be the type of people that put your needs first, your agendas first. Don't be, the, don't, don't be the person who wants to make church all about you and your preferences and your agendas. Paul wants us to realize that grumbling and complaining in our lives is evidence that we are putting Christ to the test. In other words, we're putting Jesus on trial. That's what they're doing. You're testing him. I don't know if you really know what you're doing, Jesus. So what's Paul What's, what's he doing here? He's trying to get us through these examples from the past to look in the mirror and examine our own lives. He's trying to get us off autopilot in the Christian life. He's saying there are, there's a real tempter out there who would love to keep God's people from the fullness of God. He says, look in the mirror. Take an audit of your life and of your faith. Are, are you drifting back? Have you drifted back into some of your old ways? Have you drifted back into some of those old patterns of thinking and living and acting, the ways of sin and death that Christ freed you from? It's not going to go well for you. Remember the golden calf? That's what Paul is doing. 
He's saying, are you flirting with the world? Are you, are you trending away from the distinction of Jesus Christ and more toward the life of the world and of the culture? Are you a Christian in name only? That's not going to go well for you. Remember the sexual immorality and the Baal worship at Peor and Numbers 25? Paul is saying, have you taken your eyes off Christ Jesus? Have you taken your eyes off of other people? And are you self-centered, living for yourself, making everything about you, grumbling and complaining when things don't go your way? That's not going to go well for you. Remember the serpents of Numbers 21? And Paul isn't bringing all of this up to scare us, but he's bringing all of this up to sober us. He wants us to remember that sin is serious, that temptation is dangerous. None of us are immune to sin and the destruction of sin in our lives. We must stay on guard against the enemy. Paul is saying this and reminding us of all of this. Look at verse 11 and 12. He says, now these things happen to them as an example but they are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. All he's meaning there is that, that, again, they're an example. They're a model to us who are in the age of the church, the age between the resurrection and ascension of Christ and the second coming of Christ. We ought to learn about God's character and nature. We ought to learn about the human heart so that we can be God's faithful new covenant people. Verse 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed, lest he fall. The pride, tr- pride truly does come before the fall. The person that thinks they'll never get the speeding ticket is the one who is soon to be pulled over in the church parking lot. <laughs> Paul is saying these are not ancient bits of history just to fill our brain with facts. These are real life stories of human beings who were called out, delivered, redeemed, and purposed by God who fell into the destruction of sin. Let it instruct us. Most of all, let it humble us. If we aren't careful, if we don't stay humble, if we aren't guarding our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, if we aren't checking our desires and being honest in Christian accountability, if we don't stay engaged in worship and in community, we too, church, are vulnerable to losing our way and finding ourselves in ruins of our own making. I don't know if you remember this, but I said this a few weeks ago. Jesus can save your soul and sin can still destroy your life. This is the warning. Paul wants the Corinthian church to be faithful to Jesus until the end. That's why he's going to go on in chapter 15 and give us this beautiful unpacking of the resurrection and second coming of Christ. Because that is our future and he wants to help us stay faithful and focused in the present. And so he gives a sober warning, a sober history lesson. But he doesn't just leave us with a warning, leaving us shaking in our boots. He gives us a powerful, empowering promise of the gospel. Look at verse 13 as we close. Paul writes, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to to endure it. What an empowering promise. In fact, every person in this room that calls yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, we ought to memorize this verse. What an empowering truth that we need moment by moment, day by day. 
No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation, he also provides the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I want to give you three quick things here. Number one, Paul is telling us that Satan's tricks and temptations that in your life are not truly that innovative. Will you hear me for a minute? The temptations, and this is why the history lesson is so important. Could you not just identify with each of those lessons as we walk through Israel's story? His tricks and his temptations are not that innovative. Paul says they've been the same across time and history. And so there's two things that we need. Number one, we need to know his tricks. He's always tempting us with the lie that God is not enough for us. Always. He's always tempting us with a lie that the ways of the world are better than the ways of Jesus Christ. He's always tempting us with the lie that God is leaving us out and not providing us our best. His tricks never change. And so we need to know his tricks so that we can be on guard against his tricks. And then we need to know our weaknesses. Let me give you something real quick. Somebody told me this a long time ago. Halo. H-A-L-O. Halo. Hungry. Angry. Lonely, overwhelmed. That is when you are most susceptible to temptation. When you're hungry, amen? Some of you are hungry right now and you're grumbling against your pastor, taking too long. When you're hungry, when you're angry, frustrated. When I'm frustrated, it's real easy to gossip and tear other people down, isn't it? Satan, boy, Satan would love that. He would love for you to pull out the worst in your spouse or in other people when you're frustrated rather than seek peace and reconciliation. Ooh, wouldn't he love that? When you're lonely, when you feel isolated, when you're left at home, when your family's away, when you feel like nobody really gets you or understands, you're most susceptible to the temptation of Satan to run to other things that will only destroy your life. And when you're overwhelmed or when you're tired, we need to know his tricks and we need to know our weaknesses so that we can do what he tells us next. Look at the next thing he says. He says, God is faithful. God is faithful. In other words, he's pointing us to the gospel here. He's saying, God has done something for us in Jesus Christ that is different than the people of old. God is faithful. He's done something for us in Jesus Christ. He's done something that not only forgives us our sins so that we don't have to drop dead in the wilderness under the hand of his judgment. But he's not only forgives us of our sins, but he's done something in Jesus Christ that will free us from the power of sin in our life. Paul says that, Paul says that God has made a way of escape for us in the moment of every temptation. I want you to know something. That word escape in the text is almost the same exact word as the word exodus. You see what Paul's doing here? He's recounting the exodus, the deliverance of God's people of old. And then he's saying, but he's done something different for you in the, in the new covenant, in Jesus Christ. He's made a way of escape for you. He's pointing to the gospel here. He's saying, Jesus Christ is our way of escape in every moment of temptation. How do we resist temptation? We look to Jesus Christ. We remember Jesus Christ. In the moment of temptation, we recall that we are his and that he is in us. We recall the power of Jesus Christ that is within us. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead 
is in us. We remember that there is not one temptation or test that we face that he also did not endure, yet without ever sinning. Would you please hear this? James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. In other words, you don't have to sin when you're tempted because Christ, the hope of glory is in you. And so Paul is real clear here. (laughs) He's saying God is faithful. Jesus Christ is our means of escape. He is how we resist temptation and endure. And finally, this is not in the text, but it's certainly in the Bible. When we do sin, by the way, to be tempted is, is not the same thing as to sin. But when we do sin, when we fall vulnerable to temptation, when we believe the lies of the tempter, we have an advocate whose name is Jesus. You see, that's the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. That God's righteous judgment, the righteous judgment that we just talked about, I want to encourage you to go back and read about. It's not an easy read. The righteous judgment that fell upon over 20,000. The righteous judgment of God that sent serpents into the camp so that his people would realize how serious sin is. The righteous judgment of God that pounded up the golden calf and poured it into the water and made the people drink it so they could see how bitter and disgusting idolatry really is. That righteous judgment of God fell upon his beloved son, Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. When we do sin, we have an advocate. The judgment of God that we deserve has fallen upon our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ so that all of the righteous merit of the Son could fall upon you and me. What a Savior that we have in Jesus. Church, let us be a people that take sin seriously, that resist the devil and his temptations, that we might be his holy people, experiencing the joy of our salvation. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you for your word. It is indeed a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. Thank you for the reminder of of your people of old, that they might be an example to us. They might instruct us. They remind us of the dangerousness and the seriousness of sin and idolatry. Would we be sobered up today? Would we examine our life today as Paul invites us to do? Would we remember that sin leads to death, but you have come that we might have life and life abundantly. May we be faithful to you. Help us, Holy Spirit, to be your faithful people. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for his work on our behalf, his mercy and his grace, his blood that was poured out that we might not only be forgiven of sin's penalty, but we might be empowered by your spirit to walk in freedom and newness of life. As we enter into a time of response, Holy Spirit, we invite you into this space. Would you minister to us? Would you nourish us as we go to the table? Would you be honored and glorified as we sing your praises? It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.